Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I'm so glad to be here with you as we continue our series, Baked Together, thinking about what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, what God tells us about how we are to function as Christians and function as the church together. Over the last few weeks, we've thought about the example of Jesus and what it looks like to follow that example and the promises of salvation that we find in following him. Tonight, though, we turn to the subject of how we actually live out that calling and don't get bogged down in a tendency that we typically find ourselves in, which is grumbling. And we as human beings kind of like to grumble. Sometimes it feels really good to grumble. But we're called away from a lifestyle of grumbling. And let's come before our God and ask that he would guide us and help us to see where we're grumbling in our own lives, even right now. And then think about what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for these friends who are on with me studying your word. We're studying it together. What a joy that is, and Lord, would you help us that as we do, that you would convict our hearts where they need to be convicted, and that you would empower us, because, Father, we can't do these things on our own. But we know that you've given us the greatest of gifts in the salvation that you provide to us through our Savior Jesus. And would you help us to be so taken aback by the wonder of that, so filled with it, that instead of being those who grumble, we might be those who produce the beautiful, fragrant offering of our lives to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question. If you had the opportunity to make a difference in the world, to genuinely make a difference, you knew that something that you could do would change the world. For the better, of course. Would you do it? How big of change would it need to be for you want to want to do it? Could it be a little change? Would it have to be a big change? What would it look like? And, and how would you embrace that if suddenly you realized you could make a difference, a genuine difference in the world? Not just a, a pep speech, you're going to go out and make a difference in the world kind of thing, but genuinely make a difference in the world. To, as Steve Jobs said, dent the universe. Would you do it? I think oftentimes we, we look at our lives and, and, and while we may want to think that we're doing something meaningful in the world, we spend most of our time thinking that we're not really doing anything meaningful in the world. And, and then opportunities come by and, and we're not really even ready for them because we're thinking, but what do I really have to give? What can I do that will change anything in a way that actually matters? But sometimes those opportunities are just going to come buzzing by. There was a wonderful story over the last couple of weeks of a woman in Ukraine who had a drone flying by her balcony and she was sitting there smoking her cigarette and she sees this drone, possibly a Russian drone, likely something that was intending harm to her and her neighborhood, flying by. And what did she do? She took a can of her favorite plum tomatoes that she'd pickled that was under her chair and she tossed it and she hit the drone. How she managed to do that, I I, as someone who has terrible aim, can't imagine, but but what an amazing thing. And and this woman was so shocked, on the one hand, by this drone. She'd never seen a drone before, but so prepared for this opportunity when it happened that when she was asked about it, her reaction was, what a pity for those tomatoes. She wasn't even really stunned by it. She just did it and, and then worried about her tomatoes. She loved those tomatoes. But she was ready. 
And we've seen all kinds of inspiring, amazing things in the midst of the horrors of what's going on in Ukraine of these people who, who have some opportunity presented in front of them and they take it. They're making a difference in the world. And, and you can see that how it's inspired people around the world. My mom and I were talking yesterday about how it would probably just, I think it would just crush the, the global mood if anything other than an ultimate victory for Ukraine happened because we, we watch these people in, in the midst of this horror and yet they're all taking the little opportunities they have. Many of them probably didn't think even a few months ago that they could make any difference of significance in the world. But, but seizing on those opportunities and in doing that, genuinely making a difference that this country that's supposed to fold in, in just a few days to the superior army of the Russians is still there. And in some places, even pushing Russia back. It's so inspiring and so amazing watching. But what about us? We think about a question like, what kind of difference could I make in the world? And we think, well, of course, if I had the opportunity. Scripture tells us that we do, and yet we miss out on how we're called to do it. You think about the, the man who came to Jesus and asked what he should do to fulfill the law. And, and Jesus tells him what the greatest commandments are. We see we see these examples of, of Jesus pointing out two things in the Gospels that, that are the greatest commandments. To love God and to love our neighbor. Do we do those? As we think about, well, I'd like to make a difference in the world. Do, do I do those things? And, and the answer, of course, is... I'd like to at times, and at times I'd kind of like to pretend they're not there because I don't necessarily want to love my neighbor. And sometimes it's what God wants me to do and what's showing love to God isn't really what I feel like doing at that moment. And so it's a struggle. And, and so even though we have this thing that's right in front of us, here's the two things that God wants us to do and incidentally, things that make a difference in the world. A lot of times we pass it up. We're not ready to toss our spiritual can of tomatoes at the drones of life. We, we take those two commandments that, that will lead us into actually making a difference that God wants us to make in the world, and we invert them on their head and ignore them. And that's what Paul gets to in these next verses of Philippians chapter 2. Let's go ahead, if you turn there with me, to verses 14 to 18. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul points here to something that we see as a recurring theme in Scripture, and that's that, that, that tendency to grumble. And this is a theme that shows up over and over again. We see it very clearly during the time of the Exodus, where the people will turn to grumbling. And there's other examples throughout Scripture of grumbling. And it, what it really boils down to is that there's a, this human nature sin issue that we fall into. We fall into grumbling. 
I mean, think about the Exodus for a moment. Think about the amazingness of, of God taking his people and pulling them out of a land that enslaved them, doing spectacular things like parting the Red Sea, appearing as a pillar of fire or a cloud, letting the people know that he was with them. What do they do? They, they grumble. Exodus 16, verse 7. God tells them that he's going to feed them because they've been grumbling. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And then Moses asks them the question for, what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you are grumbling against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So here they are, God's rescued them, and they're grumbling. And that continues on and on. It's not a, a unique thing to the Israelites. James, in his epistle, says this in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So it's still happening in the New Testament. And if you've hung around the church, you probably know it still happens today. If you're hanging around any other person, you know what happens today. We grumble. We like grumbling. It feels good to grumble, doesn't it? To just vent. And yet, what are we doing oftentimes? We're, we're looking for a reason why things aren't going smoothly in life, and, and we're doing that in a way that generally means that there's some other group that's worse than us. We may know that we've made mistakes and, pro and done things that are wrong, but... But those people, they're really messing up. It's our whole political discourse. And, and we've seen that. I, I was talking about the, the war in Ukraine earlier. And what do we see? The, Russia's justification? They're going to go get the, the Nazis. Going after a country that clearly isn't run by Nazis, but blaming it on alleged Nazis. We sometimes see that in our own country, blaming people who aren't really Nazis as being Nazis, or communists who aren't really communists. We, we put these labels, these, these things that mean that you're really bad, and we just label people, and then we grumble against them, and we don't actually think constructively, well, are there things that, that we need to be doing differently? Are there things that those people might be saying that's legitimate? Because we just smack one of those labels on them, and then we can ignore them and grumble. We do that in the church as well. We, we grumble about each other and, and how we're functioning in the church. And we grumble about people in other churches because we'd like to think that other churches aren't as good as our church. And so we grumble about them. But when we're grumbling about God's people and we're grumbling about the provision of the church that God's given, and we're just doing it because it sort of feeds something in us because it feels good to grumble, we're ultimately grumbling against God. Now, now let me say very clearly here, there are times to correctly critique things. And in, for example, in Exodus, if the people had seen Moses acting in a corrupt fashion, which they weren't seeing, but had they seen that and they started grumbling against Moses in that sense, that would have been a legitimate thing. That wouldn't have been against God, but, but in as much as Moses was serving God faithfully, and by and large he did, when they were grumbling, they weren't grumbling against him for not being faithful to the Lord. He was actually doing what God had called him to do. And he was serving them well, but they were grumbling because they still weren't happy. 
And, and so what we need to do in, in checking our own hearts, and especially in a culture that, that feeds the angst and, and the, the, the need to grumble like ours does, is, is ask the question when we feel the urge to grumble, am I bringing a legitimate critique or am I just looking for a reason to be unhappy? And if we find that we aren't bringing a legitimate critique, and our, our, our knee-jerk reaction is to, of course, say that we are, but if we really are honest with ourselves and, and we think about it and we say, well, I just feel better saying this, or I just don't like these people and I want to grumble against them. I wouldn't grumble if people I liked were doing this, but I'm going to grumble because I don't want to like these people. And oftentimes we're grumbling against God, especially, especially when it's about the church. And so we need to watch ourselves. Um, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and see how our human grumbling contrasts with who God is. Moses says, the, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him, that is the Israelites. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Israelites kept grumbling over and over again. Even when God was clearly providing, they could find some reason why that provision wasn't good enough. And, and so we're challenged to really ask when we feel like grumbling. And if you're like me, you probably could think of something to grumble about every day. It's really easy to get into that mode. We need to ask what we're really doing. Because the Israelites thought they were justified. Well, we're hungry. We're not getting as much food as we'd like. Or we're out in this wilderness, this really stinks. Or, or the people look really scary in that promised land. What were they doing? They were ultimately grumbling against God. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 9-12. Paul writes, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. This is referring back to the Exodus. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. When we read about the Israelites, when we read about the other examples in Scripture of people grumbling, it's not meant to just be an interesting historical thing or, or even something where we grumble against them and think, boy, these idiots over here, they, they grumbled all the time. It's meant to instruct us, Paul says, because guess what? We're the same. We still want to do the same things. And I, I think we all know that to some extent. We don't like that about ourselves, but we know that. And here's the challenge. When, when we're grumbling against things that aren't really bad, when we're focused on, on how we feel sorry for ourselves, we're really saying God isn't really that good. When we think about what God has done for us and what he's given us, and yet our fixation is on what isn't right in our lives and what we don't like about our lives, we're saying God's provision for me isn't really that good. And that's not our calling as Christians. Our calling as Christians is to be something different because the world is really good at that. The world is great at complaining. That's not what we're supposed to be doing because we're supposed to have some kind of good news to share with people. That's what Paul talks about as he goes on in verses 15 and 16. Notice what he says. Why are they not to grumble? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So he says, this generation is crooked. He's using that language from, from back in Deuteronomy. This generation is crooked. This generation is corrupt. In other words, every generation is. We're, we're fallen, sinful human beings. This is true of any given generation. It's crooked and corrupt. But as Christians, when, when we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we know that God's Spirit is in us, that we have received the gospel, that we know Jesus is our Lord and that he has forgiven us of our sins, we're supposed to start to look different. It doesn't happen all at once. Sort of like spring. Here we are at the end of March, and, and, and what's happening if you look around? A lot of the trees are still bare. It still looks kind of wintry out there. And some days, like several of the days we've had this past week, look really wintry. But what else do we see? Well, we see flowers like this. Out in my, my yard, there are these beautiful daffodils blooming right now. And, and you look at, at, at flowers like this, and, and, and they're beautiful, and you just want to walk around and enjoy them. And, and then if you actually smell them, and they smell so fragrant, it's just it's wonderful. It's not all there at once, but it's a wonderful thing as we start to see the spring come to life, and everything looks beautiful and and. And it's a reminder of, of this goodness of this creation that God has made. And that's what Paul is calling the people of Philippi to be, too. To be spring in a world that's still winter. Because while there might be still some bare trees, most of the trees, what happens when we see those first spring flowers in the midst of a still barren land? We stop and we gaze at them and we think, ooh, this is wonderful. And, and, and I actually like winter, so, so oftentimes I'm not eager to, to reach the point where there's the last snow of the year. But then I see those spring flowers and it starts to make me yearn for it. I, I, I've been enjoying the winter weather. I've been enjoying the bare earth that just gets covered in white. And, and yet you see those daffodils or you see those crocuses, start to see tulips and... and you think, ooh, I can't wait to see the rest. I can't wait to see the trees filled with leaves again. I can't wait to see all the flowering trees, the Bradford pears, and and everything else to come after that. And then you start to think about what the rest of the year is going to bring, the fruit trees and, and just all these wonderful things. That's what spring does for us, and that's what we're supposed to be to the world. We're supposed to be a fragrant offering to God in this world where people... To want to come up and smell the flowers where people see something that looks different than what's around and it stands out because it's different than what's around. Notice again what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I might not get out of prison. I may die here. There's lots of reason to grumble. But he's going to rejoice. Why is he going to rejoice? Because he knows that the Philippians know Jesus and that they're being transformed by Jesus. And if they're being transformed by Jesus, then he has reason to rejoice. He says, likewise, whatever hardships you face, if you face persecution, if things don't go right for you, if, if you're annoyed by your fellow believers and you want to grumble against them, 
you ultimately want to grumble against God, don't because look what Jesus is doing. And, and like me, I, I'm in prison and I'm rejoicing because of you. And like me, you should be rejoicing because of the people that God's called you to share that hope. When we're not grumbling, when we're instead rejoicing, what happens? Were those daffodils? Were those tulips? Were those crocuses that, that herald something new and wonderful? And in that, then, we live out a promise that spans the pages of Scripture. Back in Genesis 12, when Abraham first encounters the Lord, what does God tell him? He tells him that your descendants are going to be a blessing. And that blessing comes out ultimately in Jesus and his church. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're supposed to be showing something marvelous. Something beautiful. That's our calling when we're around other people. May we not be known as a people who grumble, but a people who rejoice. Do I see my mission? Do you see your mission? Or, or do I, because I assume I can't make any difference in, in this world, put all my, my jars away and I'm not ready for the drone that comes buzzing by? When the evil one sends attacks into this world, am I ready to throw the jars of grace at him? Or did I just grumble? It's kind of convicting, isn't it? Because a lot of times, I'd like to say I always am ready. I'm always ready to proclaim God's gospel. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? I'm a pastor. I should have this all right. But it doesn't work that way. A lot of times I just want to grumble. But God calls us to something different. He calls us to, to recognize what our mission is. We're those who are set apart. Everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who is in his church, every one of us has a common mission, which is to proclaim his excellencies to the world. To rejoice, as Paul says. So that the world sees that and wants that. We're not meant to be those who are angry. We're not meant to just represent a particular opinion that we fight against other people's opinions in the political world or in the social media world or in the workplace or any place else. We should be known first and foremost as people who rejoice because something amazing, something that's far more amazing than anything else in the world has happened. And we're receiving it. If you haven't, I hope that you do tonight, that you that you know Jesus tonight and you know his gospel and you know that he's forgiven you. But friends, if you do know that, how much more so is it convicting to us that do when we grumble anyway? When we look at the promises of scripture and we say, I believe these things and yet I'm so upset. I have so many things I want to grumble about. We need to know our mission. There's something that's brought a lot of rejoicing here in St. Louis today, and that's the return of Albert Pujols. Can you believe it? If you're a Cardinals fan, today has been a great day for you. It has for me. I, I, I was hoping this would happen, and yet I almost didn't want to believe it would really happen because somehow something this picturesque just couldn't happen, that, that this future Hall of Famer who spent the first and most spectacular part of his amazing career here as a St. Louis Cardinal and went to two World Series and helped us to win those two World Series. Actually went to three World Series, but helped us to win two of them. 
that this man who then went away and, and the city was devastated when he went away, it hurt to see him leave, is coming back for his final year in baseball. The 21 years after he began here, he's going to come back, but he doesn't want to come back and the Cardinals don't want him to come back just so that everyone can say, ah, he made it back. Isn't that nice? And we'll, we'll do some festivities. It's not meant to be just a fun event. It's very clear from what he said. He wants to come back to win. And the Cardinals said they want him to come back to win. They want to go to the World Series and win this year again. And, and, and I hope it happens and it'll be amazing. And some of that will come from the fact that he's still a very good player. But another thing is that he understands part of his mission is as a veteran player who's about to retire, a key part of his mission is to inspire the younger players to understand what it's like to be a Cardinal, to understand what it's like to go and, and get to the World Series and to do these things, to, to motivate those who will be the next pools. He understands that mission. And so he, in doing that, I am sure will be a, a fragrant offering to the team that that team is going to fight all the harder to win this year as we watch Albert, along with his friends Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, seek to eke out one last World Series in their careers, their amazing careers. And each of them understands that mission to, to be a leader in the team and to help that team be better even after they retire. And we need to understand that's the sort of mission that we have too. We have a certain period of time in this world just as those players have a certain period of time on a team. What are we called to do during that time? We're called to be leading others to know who Jesus is. Leading others to, to be able to rejoice. Not to be people who, who grumble all the time. We're not called to, to be the player that comes back and, and sits on the bench and is glad to maybe collect a few more dollars and, and otherwise grumbles about days gone by. We're called to be the player who is waiting for that opportunity to contribute whatever we can in this life. Because here's the thing that we know from, from the scriptures. God is going to use each and every one of us. We might not always understand how. But Paul's clear as he's encouraging these Philippians. He doesn't say, well, I can make a difference, so I'm rejoicing in prison. But I hope that doesn't happen to you because you probably can't make a difference. No, he says, if you get poured out in the sacrifice of your life to rejoice. That's our calling as well. May we all rejoice whatever opportunities God gives and whatever circumstances that happens. May we be a people who rejoice. And because of that, we pass on that joy to others. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, it sometimes feels like we don't want to rejoice. And it's easier to, to be sad or discouraged or angry, to complain. But you call us to be a people of joy, a people that spread joy to others, a people who, who actually make those who aren't yet part of the church want to be a part of the church because we're excited, we're happy. Why? Not because everything's easy, but because you were good. Lord, where we forget that, would you remind us? And where we do remember, would you strengthen us that we might stand firm and that whatever challenges we face, we might be willing to face them with joy, rejoicing in how you will use those circumstances that more people might know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week we're going to think about another example besides Paul of someone who rejoices in facing the hardships of life, and that's Timothy. Not, not me, but the Timothy of Scripture, the Timothy that was Paul's protege. And Timothy 
was an amazing example of serving and standing faithfully for the gospel. And so we'll look at that next week. Paul goes on in the rest of Philippians 2 to point to this example, and I hope that you'll join me at 7 p.m. next week for that. If this has been an encouragement to you tonight, please do share this message on social media or by other means, whatever means you have. Help someone to turn to God's word with us. It's always a joy when you do. And of course, a like or a share really does make a difference. It really does. Speaking of things coming up that I hope that you'll share, we had to delay it. We were supposed to launch in-person worship last week. It didn't happen because of building problems. But in two weeks on Palm Sunday, Little Hills is going to gather in person for the first time on April 10th. I do hope you'll join us. And of course, you can also check out our live stream that night if you can't be there in person. Also, we have a brand new men's study coming up the week after Easter. So much going on. We're going to be studying the book of Romans, a wonderful study uh, that will be on Thursday nights online. I do hope that you'll consider being part of that as well if you're looking for a men's Bible study at the moment. And finally, we do have our ongoing psalm series, the Psalmonizers. All four of us joined together last night to, to talk through these next psalms, which are Psalms 37, 38, and 39. It'd be wonderful to have you join us this week at grow.faithtree.com as we read through them and discuss them together. It's always a joy to get to share it with you. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, any questions you might have, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment in the comments below. Always, always a joy to hear from you. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I hope to see you again here next week.